everyone. Welcome to Pull Back the Curtain, a Philly theater podcast. I am your host, Margo Catalona, and on this episode, we have the great Joe Vito Ramirez. Hi, Joe. Hi. Hi, Margo. It's a pleasure to be here. I am <laughs> very flattered that you would welcome me onto your show. Of course. Oh, I'm so excited to have you today. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself to get started here. Sure. So I am a an actor and a props designer in Philly. Um, I'm also a budding musician. I enjoy uh, woodworking and baking bread and <laughs> learning any and all languages. And I am a severely curious person. <laughs> Great. We love that. <laughs> it's all about curiosity and collaboration here, so it's perfect. Yeah. And let's start a little bit about how you got involved in theater to begin with and what brought you to Philly? Tell us a little bit about like that origin story here. Sure. Well, um, I went to, uh, I'm from the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to a high school called the Collegiate Institute for Math and Science. <laughs> now, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. It was a very good school. I loved it very much. And I had a, a wonderful time there. But they, as you can imagine, they were severe, severely lacking in, in the arts sure. programs. So I decided that I wanted to have a, a, a drama club. And I went to the principal and I asked what, what would have to happen in order to uh, make, make that a reality. And they told me to write a petition and get the students, to, the fellow students to sign it, as well as a faculty member, mm-hmm. um, one faculty member had to sign on to be the advisor, which essentially just meant that we needed their room after school to mm-hmm. use as a um, <laughs> drama hub. So I did that. And, um, and yeah, and after school, we, we all, we read some scripts and we tried putting them up on their feet. We played improv games and mostly we just sort of, uh, hung out (laughs) and and maybe gossiped a little bit too much Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but so that's that's basically um when i started when i started take on well let me let me think i'm actually i'm actually lying to you Um, (laughs) because i'm now i'm only now remembering for some strange reason that i actually um did some acting when i was younger than that Gotcha. <laughs> um, yeah, there was a, a community theater group, and I I played uh, several characters in some classic musicals. Mm-hmm. The first for, the first production I did was West Side Story. Gotcha. Nice. Yeah, and ironically enough, being the only person of Puerto Rican descent in mm. the cast, I played uh, Riff. Wow, <laughs> the leader of the, uh, the the distinctly not Puerto Rican gang. Yeah, <laughs> great. Yeah, so after doing a few um, a few of those musicals, I uh, d- I decided that theater was a really good place to make friends. Right, I did it mostly because I uh, I wanted a community. I was lonely, as many um, middle schoolers are. Yeah, and I found that the silliest and most enjoyable people. 
wanted to be on stage. So I, uh, I decided to join them. <laughs> Same thing held true in high school. The, the silly folks um, yearned for a drama club. Mm-hmm. And turns out there was also a great intersection, which may not be very surprising, of uh, queer folks as well. Mm-hmm. So in high school, the drama club was disparagingly called the gay club by some. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't we didn't think of it as a disparaging term at all. We sort of like ran with it and we uh, um, we took it in stride. Um, gotcha. So a lot of queer folks in my high school joined the club and we were able to support each other. Nice. Yeah. So that's my start. And then uh, in college, uh, in college, I, again, having gone to a high school called the Collegiate Institute for Math and Science, again, I love that school very much. All my teachers were stupendous. Mm-hmm. Uh, extra special shout out to Mr. Hesse, who was our, uh, um, our drama club supervisor. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I love him. Gee, I haven't thought about him in in in, in far too long. Oh, really <laughs> and he was him. the one that signed the paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So having gone to a very STEM high school, it was it made sense that I considered a life in the arts uh, sort of a a fantasy, mm-hmm. something that was always going to be out of reach for me. Mm-hmm. So I actually was fascinated with astrophysics. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wild. (laughs) Um, I I loved, in high school, I loved reading the like layperson astrophysics books that were coming out by authors like um, uh, Michio Kaku and Brian Greene for two. (laughs) Um, Both professors in the, in in New York City. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, they brought, really complex, really grand concepts down to an, an understandable level. And uh, and they remained fascinating to me. And I, I couldn't believe that I could potentially spend my life thinking about the, the broadest context possible, mm-hmm. discovering perhaps something about the very makeup of reality that mm-hmm. people didn't yet know about yeah yeah. and hadn't and couldn't possibly conceive of yet oh boy that was so exciting to me I I I, yeah I cherished um my my math and physics courses Mm -hmm. um in high school and then I uh got to college Uh, I went to Haverford College which Mm -hmm. again is a lovely lovely institution (laughs) um from my experience and I went there under the pretense the pretense of studying astrophysics mm-hmm. and i had always intend to be a theater minor as well because that's where my heart was you know that's where yeah. that's where i had community that's where i found play mm-hmm. um yeah. and and that's where uh, that's where i felt seen mm-hmm. turns out frankly <laughs> the mathematics that goes into um, discovering <laughs> the things that I wanted to discover yes. <laughs> um, was extraordinarily uh, intense and to the point of being like ter- perfectly inscrutable. I couldn't, after a while, <laughs> I just hit, I, I, I was in an advanced physics course and I realized that 
every single homework assignment Mm -hmm. that we had, I needed the help of um, fellow classmates, which is, you know, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. But it got to the point where I was, I was essentially depending on them to explain to me exactly what was going on to the point where it seemed like they were, they may as well have done it, done the work for me. Gotcha. Sure. (laughs) And, and I, I, I started to realize that, that I could spend a lot of really, really super duper valuable energy Mm -hmm. sort of throwing myself at the, at at this, at higher and higher levels of mathematics, Mm -hmm. which would have been absolutely worthwhile. Mm -hmm. But I also realized that I was neglecting my, my heart in doing that. You know, I, um, it's stressful. You know, most people, eh, I shouldn't say that many people report having a very stressful college time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, problem sets and and all-nighters and being locked away in your room and and I really didn't want that for myself and that was definitely where I was headed as I struggled with the with the advanced mathematics of astrophysics Mm -hmm. yeah Um, (laughs) yeah and my only outlet was theater I met a really wonderful uh professor who uh was an absolute boss her name is Catherine and she is an absolute boss and she spoke about theater in such a systematic and yet extremely heartful way mm, yeah and i was inspired by her to to make my my fantasy of, of of making a life in theater an actual reality yeah yeah so i sort of i switched um i was a theater minor and I switched that I bumped it up in my last couple of years and I became a theater major instead gotcha mm-hmm. wow. yeah and then after college I hit the ground running I mean I went on a big old road trip with my friends uh four of us in a in a sky blue minivan or uh, drove uh, around the country the dream great <laughs> yeah the dream um I believe one of my friend's brothers called it our neo hipster cliche adventure of a lifetime or something like that (laughs) we did that (laughs) it was great it was great and when when we landed back home i knew that it was time to decide whether i wanted to pursue um theater in earnest as a as a professional and so i obviously decided that i i wanted to do that and because i had made those connections in college with my professors and several artists in the Philadelphia theater scene, I figured Philadelphia was a great place to start. So I, I wanted to pursue theater, but I didn't want to, my interests were strange. Mm-hmm. My interest in theater was strange. I, I, I knew that I wanted to act and I wanted to perform generally but I wasn't particularly interested in doing musicals or jumping straight into a lot of plays that are laden with realism, let's say. Sure. So I went to the Headlong Performance Institute, which is a, uh, I sound like a broken record at this point, but <laughs> a <laughs> great institution. And, um, yeah, and, and they their focus was definitely on movement, on 
the intersection of theater and dance, um, calling it an intersection may be offensive, uh, even <laughs> as if they are distinct enough to intersect. Mm, yeah. But I learned a lot there about performance in general. I fell in love with clowning. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, that's the start, you know. And then I after after headlong, I I got into I, I auditioned a little bit and got some some gigs. Got me started. I went on tour with a children's theater company. And again, we went we got to travel around the country, which was very nice, very different experience in some ways. In some ways, it's exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> Just not in the minivan this time. <laughs> yeah, we weren't in a minivan. We were in a much larger van. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I love hearing about how people got into theater because it's never the same story twice. So especially for our younger listeners who might be considering a career in theater but don't really know yet can change your major it's okay like there are so many routes you can go down and that's just one of them so thank you for sharing that i love it absolutely and now you work as an um a freelance or independent artist tell us a little bit about how working as an independent artist works um like is it contract to contract um what are the challenges about it either pre-pandemic or now in the pandemic? So being a freelance performer and designer can be very challenging. I don't think anybody will find that surprising. (laughs) (laughs) The the things, one of the things I like most about about theater or the arts in general is the the great potential for community. And I've found that that community is indispensable in terms of security. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, so you asked if if it if it's a contract to contract. In a way, it absolutely is that. Yes. <laughs> um, so you know that there tends to be a sort of feast or famine mentality mm, in yeah. the arts, especially with freelancing, where it's like you get a gig and the getting is good. You know, you can afford your rent and uh, you got leftover money to uh, go to a bar. (laughs) Great. This feels awesome. This is lovely. And then, you know, when, when the going is a little bit tougher, you know, it can be, it can be hard to make ends meet. So I found that in order to offset that extreme variability, I wanted to limit my cost of living Mm, yeah which is what many artists do so there are a few ways to do that obviously um the easiest and most common way to do that is to have many is to share the cost of rent so So, (laughs) i have lived with many many people in the past um seven years since i guess it's going on eight years now since graduation so by living with folks and by being very thrifty in general, and by working a day job, um, I'm able to offset the volatility of, <laughs> of uh, a life in the arts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's so interesting hearing like also about, I don't think anyone on my podcast really is just a performer, like just in your case, a prop designer, like 
so many people are more than one thing and also have a job outside of the arts. Like you said, like have a day job or not just fully in the arts. Like artists are so, God, artists can be so many things at once. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. kind of crazy to think about sometimes. <laughs> and I'm just reminded of it every time someone's on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think you I think you get that right. Um, we, we have to be um, truly um a jack of all trades really we have to fit in where we can you know it, it helps to it helps to have many skills mm-hmm. um, and it also helps to be you know in community and to share resources yeah, yeah. um and one another way to sort of guard against the volatility of a life in the arts is to create your own opportunities yeah now, lots of folks do this very well, and admittedly, lots of lots of folks do this far better than I do. <laughs> um, I am fortunate enough to be in community with some of these folks, and it was partially for that reason that I joined some of my friends in the Shoebox Theater Collective. Great. Um, yeah, and so we... By, by creating our own work, we can create our own opportunities. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's another way through. And now I find that, the, that it has to all work in combination for me specifically. Like honestly, some folks, and I have friends who, who really just sort of put their nose to the grindstone and, and, and hit the audition circuit and get the work. Yeah. Um, and, and really just like a full-time full-time actor, full-time dancer, whatever it might be. Um, that, that hasn't really ever been what I've wanted. Mm-hmm. Because like I mentioned before, I'm, I'm intensely curious. I want to be trying different things all of the time. And I want to be gaining new skills and learning new things. And don't get me wrong. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you want to be a good actor, then you absolutely have to continue to stay curious and to learn new things, et cetera. But I like to flirt with a lot of different media. Yeah, that's great. I like, <laughs> it's a great way of putting it too. <laughs> I think flirting with different types of media is like how I started in college too. And I kind of want to get back into it because I've definitely been like fully theater for a really long time now. But like, I think I've lost a little bit of that curiosity of about other forms of media. And yeah, especially in a pandemic, it's <laughs> it's a little hard to... Um, remain curious but which we'll get into that's great (laughs) so tell me a little bit about shoebox theater collective since you mentioned it (laughs) yeah absolutely well i i i feel compelled to say of course that like please don't don't uh don't feel bad about focusing (laughs) focusing in it's very necessary for anyone at any at, at certain times but but Definitely for you, who I know is a senior in college, it seems that you are, for lack of a better term, forced to focus. Yes. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, that's great. That could be very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very fruitful. <laughs> um, so Shoebox Theater Collective is based in Maniunk. Mm-hmm. It is, we have a home. Our home is the Venice Island Performing Arts Center which is a parks and recreation building <laughs> nice. um, owned by the city of Philadelphia, um, which also, which just so happens to contain a fully functional theater. 
Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, with a pretty decent sized house and like a a fly system and some really cool gizmos and gadgets. Nice. That's great. Yeah. And and so a couple of my friends um, worked there as tech folks who were also uh, employed by Parks and Rec to, you know, be camp counselors and um, and just general. Um, oh, gee, what do they call them? I don't know. Like people who, uh, yeah, people who work for Parks and Rec. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Curious. Well, a few of my friends work for Parks and Rec uh, in this in this particular at this particular site, namely my dear dear friend Ryan Rebel, who um, I went to college with. Gotcha. Yeah, and the the temptation to utilize this beautiful beautiful theater space was too too great. <laughs> And um, through Ryan, I also met um, Kelly Orenshaw, who is uh, the leader of that rec center. And uh, she is uh, amazing, a powerhouse. And there are a few other people, uh, Kevin Somerville, who is uh, the, like, one of the loveliest humans ever. Um, and, and some, some uh, really important others as well um, decided that they wanted to make a theater company uh, and, and to use this space. So um, their first production was uh, the production that ought not be named. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, their first production was Macbeth. And uh, I unfortunately had no part in that. <laughs> and I later signed on um, to join them. And uh, we, so Ryan and Kelly uh, and Kevin who work at Venice Island uh, started the Shoebox Theater Collective, or I guess it was Shoebox Theater Company at the time. Gotcha. And when I joined them a, a year later, we decided to change the name to uh, the Shoebox Theater Collective, just to give it a more um, community feel. <laughs> For sure. Um, and so we make a lot of weird stuff. Um, <laughs> Possibly to the chagrin of some of our members, you know, there's always like a, a push and pull of like, oh, we want to do something classic or, oh, no, let's really mix it up this time. Yeah. The first production that I was a part of with the Shoebox Theater Collective was um, a production directed by Ryan Rebel called Wild, a clown western. Mm. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And <laughs> oh, gosh, I loved, I love, love, loved this production. Oh my god, that's so fun! <laughs> yeah, so if you, I mean, if, if you can imagine what that might look like, mm. you're probably not that far off. Gotcha. <laughs> um, it was very, it was very well done in my in my estimation. Of course, you have to take my opinion at a, a <laughs> grain of salt, having been an important part of the production. But um, I really had a good time. I, I felt like I, I met so many lovely people in that process, and the work we were doing was was generous and vulnerable and smart and and surprising and and I you know I, I felt that it was that this this sort of work environment was how I thrived mm -hmm. yeah and so I wanted to make sure that that continued <laughs> so you know we pressed on we cha we changed our name to the shoebox theater collective and um, and we've been making you know we've been making work since nice. and yeah, we, we try to, obviously, um, the uh, Venice Island does not 
that has a lot of programming as well that, that you know doesn't have anything to do with um, shoebox. We just we just also perform there. So Venice, <laughs> yeah, Venice Island um, hosts lots of really great uh, works for the stage and has a lot of great programming for the people uh, of the community. Nice. Which is great. And I'm I'm honored that you know that we get to be a consistent part of that. Yeah. And what a great example too of like you said before, the creating your own opportunities. Like they saw the space <laughs> and they were like, Yeah, this is what we're gonna do with it. This is how we're gonna create opportunities for ourselves. That's wow, what a great example. What a good tie-in. <laughs> yeah. Tell me a little bit more about instead of performance too, about your work building props specifically like how do you I'm always fascinated talking to designers a lot and the makers of things especially when we're talking about like a designer is bringing their own work into a process or production and the director obviously has their own vision how do you still use your own voice and your own vision as a designer while still following through with what the director wants um how does that process come through for you? That's a very good question. So I I have been lucky so far. I've been, the, the shows that I've designed props for have been very strange. <laughs> and, and, very, and, and many of the stage directions have been pretty abstract. Mm-hmm. And so the demands of the show called for called for objects, for properties, that no one really quite knew how we were going to pull it off. <laughs> so, so that left me a lot of room to create, to be creative and to, to um, add my flair. Mm-hmm. And I love when that happens. You know, I, it's also really wonderful when you get a production where things are pretty straightforward and you can, you know, go to the, go to the warehouse uh, or borrow from other theaters and say, hey, I need... I have a, a perfectly ordinary list of things that we need. We need five wine bottles circa 1974, um, six ashtrays, a couple of rocks glasses, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Like that's uh, it. You know what you're getting into. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and there's, of course, there's plenty of space for flair there as well. But generally speaking, I when I come to a new production as a designer, I really, really want to respect the the one, the practical needs of the show, right? First things first, um, what are the, what are the demands of this particular show? What, what properties do we need? What objects do need to be in this space? What will make the show better? What will make it work? Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is what is the tone of the piece? What is the aesthetic? What is the given circumstances, right? What is the, the where are we in time and space? And what is the director's aesthetic as well? What are they what are they shooting for? What what tone are we are we looking to to evoke? Um so that's the second thing. So we've got the practical demands, the aesthetics, and then the third thing to keep in mind is uh the what are our capabilities, right? Now lots of times the the play will call for something that is absolutely untenable. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then the, uh, and then the audience is drowned in, uh, in sand uh, entirely. Mm. And then, 
and then a, a real live bear, for instance, comes on stage and and uh, and and mauls one of the actors. This must be real, you know, like written in the play. Um, <laughs> the entire floor turns into water, and uh, everyone drowns. Yep. <laughs> They're really violent, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So we have to consider what we can make happen given our resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and I think that there's a lot and I think that there is a lot of room for creativity at those at the intersection of demand, aesthetic, and capabilities mm-hmm. as a de- as a designer. Yeah. And I certainly as a creator I am always in the designs that I create. I'm always there. I, I, I'm, I'm inextricable. <laughs> I can't, I can't be separated from them. So I don't, I don't necessarily try to put my particular spin on a thing. I try to be true to the, the general theme and aesthetic, and try to do what we can to make the, to make the world tangible. Yeah. Right. To provide a cohesive front to the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as I mentioned before, it seems that a prop designer's job is just to be incredibly scrappy. <laughs> right. Like you have to know, you have to know so many different, uh, so many different forms, so many different art forms. Uh, you need to. There's so many different kinds of crafts that you need to be um, oh, well versed yeah. in. Yes. Uh, Right. There's, there's construction, there's there's like dramaturgy, there's all kinds of uh, the um, fabric arts and, yeah. and et cetera, you can imagine. So I like to let my own personal flair speak through the challenges of making the impossible happen. Mm-hmm. You know? Do you have a favorite prop that you've made? <laughs> oh, good question. I, I love puppets. Mm, yeah, yeah. I love puppets so much. Oh, boy. Um, obviously, it's hard to say which is your favorite because you kind of, kind of love them all. You created them, yeah. Yeah, they're little creations. And puppets specifically, you know, they're, they're characters in themselves. So I, 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 it's, it's very easy to fall in love with them. Mm, that makes um, sense. This summer... Um, during the pandemic, I created, uh, I worked with uh, Shakespeare in Clark Park yes, on yeah. their pageant wagon, yes. um, <laughs> which was a play called Everyman. And they, I, and I created the puppets for them. Thanks. Yeah. They needed two puppets. Um, they needed one puppet, uh, a God puppet mm-hmm. and a death puppet. Mm-hmm. And, I talked with the director and their idea for the God puppet was, was really sort of like, it was already pretty cohesive and coherent. It made a lot of sense and and they already essentially had the design in their head. So um, that was a, an instance where I sort of just had to do, do what I knew was possible. Yeah. And that always presents challenges because uh, physics <laughs> is a fickle, friend (laughs) (laughs) Um, so even the most straightforward designs can go uh, stupendously awry 
Um, but that that puppet uh, I created, and it more or less worked precisely as um, it needed to. And and um, and I, I sort of credit the the director for that idea. The death puppet, mm-hmm. on the other hand, was one of those instances of a playwright writes in something with absolutely no concern for the practicality of it. Yeah. Um, I love, love, love when that happens. <laughs> and so that means that meant that I got to play. Yeah. So death needed to be a jack in the box that then when opened became a, an incredibly imposing figure on the stage. Mm, Um, And it was more or less just that it was like death is unleashed from this Jack in the box and then becomes extremely large. And, um, and the rest was sort of up to me. So this every man being a, uh, an an old play and a classic and, and going along generally with the, the themes of the, of the show, it felt that death should be a, a very, very understandable figure so i went with the classic shrouded death as a a skeleton you know the harbinger of of doom sure (laughs) Um, the puppet itself was nine almost was almost 10 feet tall in his whole stature um and it was i don't know how much how much detail i should go into the makeup of this thing but my friend Zach Santoro will love this. <laughs> He'll listen to the whole thing. So. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And of course, you can edit out any of the unnecessary yeah. bits. <laughs> but um, so de- the, the, the backbone of death, if you will, was a, a PVC pipe, mm-hmm. a very long PVC pipe. The, the head was wire mesh, mm-hmm. uh, chicken wire, and a paper mache. Um, so a sort of a chicken wire skeleton, if you will, and then a paper mache facade, yeah. which is kind of ironic since it was a skeleton anyway. So the skeleton was the whole thing. But so we have this larger than life puppet and uh, it's two and it had two uh, very imposing hands as well um, that were made out of upholstery foam. Mm-hmm. And in order to unleash, quote unquote, the death from this jack-in-the-box we took one of the hands and stuffed it into an apparatus a podium and the -the jack-in-the-box unit Mm -hmm. we stuffed the the upholstery foam hand into that box so that um an actor could you know operate the crank on the -the jack-in-the-box and then the hand would then pop out of the top of the jack-in-the-box. And so, because it's, it's foam, you know, it can be squished down and then it will expand as you open it up. Nice, nice. Yeah. And so the the hand pops out of the jack-in-the-box and then revealed from behind the set is the rest of this super-duper imposing death figure, which, which then is set on the stage and then looms over the performers for the rest of the show. Yeah. And because this was a, uh, you know, this was the pageant wagon, um, the the set itself was very minimal. So it really was sort of like the set was death. (laughs) 
Um, it was the one big thing. Nice. So it had to be compelling. It had to be beautiful and interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spent a lot of really, oh, I, I spent a lot of time in my shed working on this thing. <laughs> and just pouring my soul into it. It was so lovely. And and, and I was very happy with the fi- the finished product. You know, it, its head was on a, on a swivel. So an actor oh God. Um, all the way at the bottom, uh, like uh, below the set could turn a handle and its head would move uh, 10 feet up. Yeah. Oh. I would say that was probably my favorite um, my in recent memory. I also created a set of puppets that had to be worn uh, by an actor. This was for Shoebox. Uh, we, we did a production of Ange Bay's The Medusa Play. And it required a, there was a group of yes men, mm-hmm. human yes men, who were were so yes men like that they were literally puppets in this play. Mm-hmm. So the, the leader of this group wore them on their shoulders and, and puppeted these characters um, throughout the show. And, and presented a unified front. Mm-hmm. So I needed to make four puppets that could be used independently and in unison. Mm, yeah. Which yeah. presented a serious <laughs> challenge. And they also needed to be uh, worn. So I needed to create an app- apparatus that the actor could wear as well. Wow. So... You can imagine, I'll, I'll spare you the challenges, uh, the technical uh, challenges, but I had a lot of fun creating those characters too. Um, there was one puppet in particular of the set named Daffodil, who, oh boy, oh, my friend. He was such a cutie. I, I cast their heads in neoprene plastic, and I wanted to give them all uh, really caricature-like uh, faces. And... And he looked so dopey and cute. And they were all hipsters as well. So he was sporting an undercut oh. and a nose ring. And, uh, oh, and I actually I actually fashioned his, his shirt from one of my own shirts. So the fabric was familiar. And I just sort of fell in love with this little guy. Um, yeah, so I would say that those two were probably my favorites in recent memory. Oh, that's so great. I love... Oh my God. I just keep thinking about my friends in theater history one when we read every man. I hope you guys are listening and like picturing this in your head. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope Axian Toro, you better be listening because <laughs> this episode <laughs> is like your fever dream. <laughs> um, we have someone in the theater company that is fully about props. He graduated last year, um, but props like his whole life. Um, Brilliant. Is, yeah. is he- uh, is he a part of the Philly theater community? Um, not really. He, well, he graduated um, <laughs> and he, oh, Zach, I'm going to get it wrong. You're a CS major or IT. So he has like a big tech job um, yeah. and just theater for fun and really liked it and did theater like every summer growing up too. Um, and that was always just his thing. And now we're kind of like, what do we do without our props guy? <laughs> Oh yeah, it, they're indispensable, really, because they're so scrappy. You need them. <laughs> yes, that is Zach Santoro. If you're listening, <laughs> that is you, Zach, Zach Santorum. If you're listening uh, and you want to make some 
props together. Please, let's make that happen. That sounds yes. great. I love it. I'll let them know. <laughs> and getting also into, we talked before about how your curiosity really comes through in your work too. Um, how does your identity, either as a non-binary artist or that curiosity, like how how do you come through in the work that you do um, and what influences your work? So, hmm. <laughs> it's a big question. A good one, a good one for sure. Um, so being non-binary in the Philly theater scene uh, presents a few challenges. Um, one very obvious one is that it is very likely that you will be misgendered. Mm-hmm. Of course, that happens with everyone, uh, including um, well-meaning folks, um, mm-hmm. and it can be more or less frustrating de- depending on the situation and, and obviously depending on the person. Yeah. Um, another thing is the uh, there's obviously a lack of representation for <laughs> non-binary folks on stage. Yeah. And, well, I once had a director say to me, uh, when I told them that I was non-binary, they said, why would you shoot yourself in the foot like that? Mm. And now what they meant, I believe, was why would you limit the, the type of characters that you may be called in to play? Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. Now, <laughs> obviously, hearing that hurt and was also problematic. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it, it was deeply troubling, mm-hmm. but, um, but it demonstrates what I see as the uh, current limitations of our collective imagination. Mm. Right. I think we need to push forward and, and welcome in new narratives. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously it would be wonderful to see um, more characters uh, outside of the binary on stage. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. That's like great. Um, well, it's not great, obviously, but it's important to understand the challenges so that as administrators, we know what to look out for. Like we said before about administrators have a greater role. Um, and that's just one of the ways that we can look out for that too. Yeah, absolutely. And going into that a little bit of your role in Philly theater um, and Philly theater in general, how would you describe Philly theater? Like, what are we doing? Great. What do you think can be improved? Um, Just your perspective on the community. Well, I think there's a great variety of work available in Philly. There are lots of different, um, lots of different companies investing in lots of different performance strategies Mm, yeah. Um, you obviously you have your you have your musicals and your and your realism and you also have your f- like far far out <laughs> wackadoo experimental stuff, which is you know <laughs> more where I like to live. <laughs> um, and so I think that Philly does offer a great variety of uh, of theater. Mm-hmm. And I also find the Philly theater scene to be relatively collaborative, like really homey and comfortable yeah. and um, familiar. Mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, sometimes even to the point of being incestuous. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of what Philly needs to do, I think the Philly theater scene, it, goes, it comes back to representation. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. um, we, and I think we need to work on representation, not only on stage, but within every role of the production team. Mm, yes yeah (laughs) yeah you like we mentioned before the um, administrators and producers can sort of act like gatekeepers Mm -hmm. obviously every community has gatekeepers and and we need gatekeepers that are dedicated to anti-racism for one Uh, we need companies that are actively dedicated to welcoming the vision and voices of the of the systemically oppressed folks. Yeah. And and we need that to be happening at every level of production, like I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Generally, I believe that artists are tastemakers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, art sort of describes the limitations of society's collective imagination and it comes back to this collect this idea of collective imagination mm-hmm. yeah for me um so i think that by pushing the envelope by demanding anti-racist non-patriarchal narratives be shown on our philly stages mm-hmm. i think we actually um welcome in a brighter a brighter community so yeah yeah so i would say to like new folks coming into the scene i would say come come with a mission you know come with a mission uh, to invest your artistic practice with radical equity yes right? <laughs> yeah. to to disavow patriarchy and white supremacy at every level of production and mm-hmm. and that includes and 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 especially points to arts administrators and producers. Mm-hmm. Um, we yeah. need we need bold uh, producers and administrators. We need folks who are um, who are going to allow for a more equitable arts scene. Yeah. And yeah. Generally, I would say let's decolonize the collective imagination. Mm. You know, yeah. if we can do that then we can like be heralds for a future free from systemic oppression mm-hmm. in society at large. Yeah. We can do that. Uh, we are doing that. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> we yeah. must. But more, we get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. As artists, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's wonderful. And I see a lot of potential in Philly um, for for just that process, mm, you know, I yeah. see I f- see I see folks trying very hard to integrate radically anti-racist mm-hmm. um, protocols in in their art making, and I, I think that that's awesome. That's so lovely. Yeah, and I think that that you know, obviously, us do it as artists. When we do that, we make it possible for other folks to do that as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to like, it's not enough to be not racist anymore. You have to be actively, radically anti-racist, like to make progress. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And of course that goes with, that goes for um, all of the isms, 
Yes. Know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we we live in a in a in a sort of crusty uh, the crusty edge of history where we have a lot of crusted over isms. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's important in, in our artistic practice, again, at every level for every role of the production process for mm-hmm. us to emphasize a, a more equitable process, which means yeah. actively welcoming those who have been underrepresented. Yes. Yeah. Not, not just, clearing the the field so that everybody gets a quote-unquote chance which mm-hmm. of course is not uh, an effective way to create equity because the opportunity structure is skewed in the favor of certain populations yes yeah yeah i love also how how it's also about at every level of the process like it's not enough to just have actors that are non-binary trans black what have you it's no you need like a producer that is also BIPOC like it needs to be at every level um it can't just be that front-facing level so that you can market it (laughs) it has to be ingrained in the process yeah Margo yeah (laughs) you got that right (laughs) and it is yeah it's kind of a it's easy to notice Mm. that when when pressured many theater companies just sort of diversify their casts yeah um, which is a good thing to do obviously very important thing to do but again it has to happen at every level like you said yeah we want to see we want to see representation from on the production team Mm -hmm. directors designers performers you know you name it yeah absolutely it's also i think a lot about like how for an audience member they're seeing just the people that are on stage and how to maybe like the general public that might be enough as representation right because they're just seeing who's on stage but to everyone else in the industry we know everybody that's backstage everybody who's an administrator like that really matters even if the audience just sees one side of it absolutely i mean we we live we live in this community yeah we do and and we want to see ourselves reflected and we want to see ourselves empowered yes yeah as we wrap up here too, um, thinking about our listeners are most likely um, emerging arts leaders or you know people like me that are graduating, maybe considering a career in the arts or theater specifically. Um, what do you want those emerging arts leaders to know? Either about, it could be about anything, about this industry, about being non-binary artists, um, anything that can support the knowledge of those leaders just coming up great um thanks margo uh so i will say that the um the philly theater scene as i mentioned before is close-knit and quite familiar um and and downright lovely sometimes um in in its collaboration and kindness (laughs) certainly not always one of the things that absolutely needs to change is representation. Yeah. Now, in general, and I don't want to get, I don't want to hop on a soapbox here, but in general, um, the arts, specifically with um, auditioning, there is this sort of sense of egalitarianism where we're all on the same level. You can, if you work hard enough, you can make it. You, everyone's given a chance to be seen 
And if you're the best, then you'll get the role, right? Which is complete and utter garbage for the most part. Because there is an undercurrent of... Um, I can't think of a word. It's just like everything can be stacked against you, even if you try your hardest. Oh, yes, that's certainly true. Um, there is... So the there is expectations from the the subscribers to any given theater. Right? Yeah. Um, they want to see particular narratives played out by particular bodies in space. Now, that means that folks who uh, look a certain way are very unlikely to get cast if, if for no other reason than the theaters aren't interested in putting on plays where people who look like you are on stage. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's bad and wrong. And I think that what I would like to tell people who are coming up in the arts at the moment, especially those who are going to be in Philly, is that this industry needs visionary administrators. Yeah. yeah. Right? We need folks who are going to, who are going to change the game, who are going to, um, challenge the crusty expectations, um, the sort of solidified um, oppressive systems, right? The solidified expectations that come from um, a an industry that is appealing to uh, white supremacy yeah. and misogyny and to patriarchal values. So <laughs> what can be done about that? Um, it's hard as an actor to, to feel that you have any agency in that process. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's why I say, and, and of course that's not true. Actors do have, have their own sort of agency. But I believe that this systemic issue is, requires a systemic uh, solution. So that's why I say this industry really needs visionary administrators we're going to challenge the crusted over expectations uh, that you will see familiar narratives on stage that we've seen for centuries. Yeah. For, we need to see narratives from a broader swath of life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's no surprise that many famous plays are written by dead white men yeah. um, whose audience was largely mm, hold on <laughs> I, don't, I don't know i don't know that i want to go too far into this that's okay mm. yeah cut it off wherever you want you're totally fine but yes you are right it's all old white men <laughs> Well, it, it it isn't though, right? And there's lots of cool. There's lots of there are lots of visionary artists who are making work that demands to be um, put on stage, right? So ultimately, the narratives that that get put on stage, that decision is made by the administrators. Yeah. Right. And and I think it takes a bold administrator to say, hey, we're going to we're gonna we're gonna boost representation here. We're not only gonna welcome other um, we're, we're not only going to welcome a more diverse crew of actors 
that's only the that's like only the easiest and first step, right? Because it's very easy to tokenize um, uh, actors as well, right? Say there are lots of <laughs> lots of shows that actually have baked into them just like token minority characters or, or token queer characters or whatever else, but to but to radically privilege the uh, narratives that have been underrepresented, I think, would be a, a leap forward for the Philly theater community. And there are people who are trying to do that. Yeah. And I commend them. <laughs> and I am grateful for them. And I champion them. Um, I would like to say that I am one. That is really in the work. So, you know, let my work speak for itself. <laughs> But yeah, for people who are coming up, I'd say, um, don't be afraid to have a mission. Yeah. Um, you don't have to just fit yourself in, you know, uh, you don't have to pick a type and then beat it to death. Yeah. Um, though, if you do want to do that, then there, there does it seem to be plenty of opportunity for you there. But yeah, I'd say, I'd say come with a strong mission, come with a strong mission to take the fervor of change of progress and let that live in your work yeah especially if you're an administrator <laughs> yeah oh that's so so good to hear <laughs> i think i mean even going back to what you said about just more representation it's we do theater to hear stories about other people not necessarily our own all the time and i think for way too long it has been very much like, okay, this is what's familiar to us. This is what we're going to present on a stage. But no, I want to hear other stories that aren't mine. I want to hear all of them. Like that's That goes back to why we do theater. <laughs> that's the whole point. And it's so great to hear too about that administrators have that role. Because I think a lot of times, or maybe it's just in my program, everybody in EAM can speak for itself. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot of times administrators are kind of like, okay, we're just going to do the paperwork or something else. But it's like, no, we have a huge role to play here. It's not just, it's not just the performers that can be creative. It can be us on the administrative end as well in every aspect. Certainly. I'd like to emphasize something you said. You said that uh, there, there have tended to be uh, familiar narratives portrayed on stage, right? And that that word familiar, right? It's got family in it. So if we don't see if we don't see narratives of folks who don't look like us, then it becomes difficult for us to like actually, as a society, think of them in a familiar way as family, as humans. You know, like we we need to familiarize ourselves with the narratives that we normally wouldn't be able to see. Exactly. And as administrators, like, read those narratives, hear them too. It's not just us as um, audience members. It can also be the administrators. Like you said, like, it's it's not just one facet. It has to be every facet working together. Certainly. Yeah. Wow. A lot to think about. <laughs> but it's all good work. I love it. Yeah. And especially for our young listeners, just thinking about those themes of, like, Again, why are you doing this in the first place? I think it all goes back to that. Um, well, 
thank you so much for being here today. <laughs> um, so such great information and so much to think about for like the future of Philly theater and in general. Tell listeners if they want to keep up with you, uh, what you're working on next, um, where they can learn a little bit more about you. Great. Um, so I, I do, ha- I have a website and that's joevitoramirez.com. Uh, no surprise. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you can go there for, you know, all, all, all of my projects are listed there. Um, I will say that coming up, I'm working on a show with New Paradise Laboratories um, that should hopefully uh, air sometime in April. Now, with the pandemic, we've we've been uh, we've had a hard time setting any any um, hard deadlines. So we shall see. But and I don't want to give too much away because it's very much in process. But <laughs> um, keep an eye out for that because it promises to be really cool. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. Great. Well, everyone, you can find more about Joe's work on, like they said, their personal website. All links will be in the description of this episode and on the Instagram page at pullbackthecurtainpod, as always. Awesome. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for the work you do in this community. And thank you for especially the advice that you've given to young listeners today. Thank you so much. You are very welcome, Margo. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for having me. This episode of Pull Back the Curtain, a Philly theater podcast, is solely dedicated to the props master himself, Zach Santoro. Thank you for supporting, and I hope you enjoyed this dive into the props world. 